Good morning to you, all right? Welcome to Citadel Square. If you're new, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here. If you got a Bible, why don't you go grab it and find Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Uh, if you got a Bible, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you, a black one. If you, Again, if you don't have one, that's our gift to you. Take it, read it, and uh, give it away, and then come back and get another one. And we'll do that uh, together for the years to come. Uh, we are in a series, uh, kind of a series within a series in the book of Luke that has to do with discipleship. It has to do with how Jesus is choosing to train the 12 that he will leave behind after his uh, betrayal, torture, crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection and ascension. Uh, we started Luke chapter 9 looking at uh, the disciples getting invited into participating in the preaching and teaching and healing ministry of Jesus himself, where Jesus gave them power. Uh, and they went out two by two uh, throughout all the villages, preaching and healing. They had authority over the demonic, and they had authority over disease, and they come back just thrilled at uh, the experience they had. And then last week, we looked at uh, really the provision that Jesus gives to the disciples through having them experience uh, an impossible ministry task, feeding 5,000. And we spent time looking at that, how their uh, dependence, not upon themselves, but upon Jesus, really will form uh, their ministry pattern going forward. That once Jesus leaves, the pattern of ministry that really takes up the majority of the New Testament are humble servants who are dependent on God to do things that are beyond what they could ask or imagine. Well, today, outside of the power and the provision, uh, what Jesus is going to do with the disciples is make them focus, uh, particularly on something that Luke has been building really since the beginning of his book. We're moving beyond the halfway point of Jesus's ministry into the latter part of his teaching and training of the 12, and then eventually into his parables, into his betrayal and death toward the end of the book. And that's, and we'll be done with that, you know, 2028, 20, I promise. No, no earlier than that, though, probably. Uh, no, I'm, I'm kidding. But if you got Luke uh, in front of you, y'all there in Luke? Okay, look at Luke verse, uh, Luke 9, verse 18. And I'd like you just to turn back one book. Keep your finger there in Luke. Between Luke 9, 17 and 9, 18 is something that commentators call Luke's great omission. Turn back with me to Mark. And if you look at uh, Mark chapter 6... I want to show you what Luke leaves out. All of the synoptic gospels, which are the Matthew, Mark, and Luke gospels, paint a picture of Christ. They have a, a particular theme and emphasis that they are trying to communicate. Well, Luke does something really interesting here. If you look at Mark chapter 6, verse 44... If you see, that's the end of Jesus feeding the 5,000 in the book of Mark. Are you with me? We're doing Bible drills this morning. You're doing great. So if I can hear all the pages turning. Well, between Mark 6.44 all the way through, flip forward a page or two, to Mark 8.27, Mark, uh, Luke leaves all of that material out. So just scan those pages with me. And, and you can see Jesus healing the sick and traditions, commandments, the Syrophoenician woman's faith, the healing of the deaf, Jesus feeding the 4,000, uh, the leaven of Pharisees and Herod. All of that information, Luke just kind of neglects. 
and pulls out of his gospel to try to put the feeding of the 5,000 right next to what we're about to learn here in Luke chapter 9. So come back to Luke chapter 9 with me. Uh, Luke chapter 9 in this section is really all about who Jesus is. It's what Jesus is going to take the disciples aside and he's going to press their confession of who he is. Do you think Jesus cares what you think of him? Yeah, do you think he cares that we have a right perspective on who he is? Do you think as you train the next generation of disciples that it's important for them to know who Jesus Christ is? Amen? That when we raise our kids in the church, it's really, really important that we hand off the traditions and truths of the faith to them so that they carry the truth of the gospel into the generations that will follow. Well, that's what you have here. As Jesus prepares to train these men, he's going to come to a full stop and he's going to do a theological deep dive on who he is. Today, we aren't going to feel guilty. Isn't that good? I'm going to give you no moral commands. We're not going to really expose any sin except perhaps how you have viewed Jesus up to this point. All of what we're going to do in just four little bitty verses is gaze upon Christ. All the application of it comes next week. So you want to skip next week? Fine. Skip next week. This is the Sunday I'm glad you're here. Because the super, super important thing that Jesus wants to get across is who he is to you. Who he is to the disciples. Do they have an accurate understanding of who it is they're following? Do you think that's important? Do you think, of course, through the seasons of ups and downs in life, do you think it's important that we know who the good shepherd is, who, whose voice we're following, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil, remember that? Green pastures, still waters. It's important that we have an accurate understanding and an accurate representation of who Jesus is. So what you're going to see here in this passage is that while the disciples have an orthodox understanding, a great theological statement about Jesus, Jesus is going to round it out with, a, with something he hasn't talked about yet up, into the, up to this point in Luke's gospel. And it's an important part of what the disciples will be tasked with teaching and preaching after he's gone. Uh, have you found that... Um, early in your Christian life, you have a perspective on who Jesus is, right? You come to the understanding, Jesus forgives my sins, Jesus died on the cross for my sin, in my place, rose from the dead so that my justification and right standing before God is secure for all eternity. But then, have you found that as you walk through your Christian life, that your understanding of Jesus doesn't necessarily change, but it broadens, doesn't it? It deepens. That as you read through your Bible year after year and month after month, as you go through seasons in life where there's change and struggle and sin and difficulty, that you're laying hold of truths that were very, very precious in the beginning of your faith, but now they become anchors. They become posts in your life that hold up your life. That your depth of understanding of Jesus Christ grows, widens, deepens, broadens, and you get to know him in new and different ways throughout the course of your life. Older believers, amen? Has Jesus changed over the course of your Christian life where you've understood who he is and what he's like in new and different ways throughout the seasons? Yeah, that's, been, that's for all of us. 
We go, I knew him at the beginning, now I know him better. And that's really the ambition throughout the course of our life, throughout the work that we do in reading the word, is to continually develop and grow in our understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Well, that's what Jesus is going to do here for the disciples. He's going to introduce them to some things that perhaps they've never thought about in who he is and their experience in walking with him. So, let's pray, and then we'll jump in here together. Father, for these few minutes as we look into your word, as we long to know you and grow in our understanding of who you are, we pray that today would be one of those times where we look into the truth of your word and you shape our affections, you shape our understanding, you shape our perspectives on who you are, that we would grow to understand you more as a result of meditating on these truths. Spirit of God, as you open our minds and hearts to understand that you would turn our hearts and our affections to Christ, that we would lay hold of him in new ways for the struggles and sins and difficulties that are represented in a room this size. Father, I pray that you, uh, through your shepherding voice and your shepherding word, would comfort and encourage those who are in this place with the, the truth, the accuracy, the doctrine of who Christ is that I would do my best to lift him up, that anything that I say that confuses that would be forgotten and the pure clarity of the person of, of Jesus Christ would be main seen here this morning. Father, bless us in our ambition to understand you and to love you and to walk with you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 9, verse 18. If you're still in Mark, we're going back to Luke. You all back in Luke? Okay. Luke 8, uh, 9, verse 18. Now it happened. That's a really pregnant way to start, isn't it? That's kind of like foreboding. You know, that's how the story of, as I was leafing through and looking at this passage, that's how the story of David and Bathsheba starts. You know that? Now it happened when. Uh, it's how Nehemiah starts. Now it happened when. And this is uh, an important moment in the development of the disciples' theology. It's an important moment in the development of how they understand who it is they're following. So Luke gives you a little bit of a literary pregnancy here to let you know that what follows is a significant moment in the life of the disciples and a significant moment in our reading of the Gospel of Luke. So it happened... But as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. My wife was commenting on this, and she's like, it's like parenting. You know, you're trying to just take two minutes on the porch to pray and see God, and then somebody is, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you talking about? Can I have a snack? What's happening? Where are you at? Why? You know, it's funny that Luke goes, he's praying alone. Oh, yeah, and there's 12 men also around there with him. Uh, and that's how it feels to parent. Uh, anyway, here's what uh, Luke does to begin. Prayer is an emphasis in the book of Luke. It's an emphasis particularly with Jesus. Jesus, when he prays in the book of Luke up to this point, often spends time retreating from the crowds. He often spends time alone. We've seen him pray in really significant moments in his ministry. Back in Luke chapter 4, when he heals all day long, it says he gets up early and he withdraws to pray. And when the disciples come and find him, he says, I must go and preach to the villages because that is why I've come. When Jesus comes out of the water at his baptism, while he is praying, he receives the divine affirmation of God in heaven. When Jesus spends all night in prayer in Luke chapter 8, he chooses the 12 disciples. So when we encounter Jesus praying in the book of Luke, we're prepared for something significant to happen. And it just so happens that up to this point, Jesus has always prayed alone. He's always been by himself, if not for the baptism. But
But when he's here in Luke chapter 9, we have Jesus with the 12, which means something is about to happen in response to Jesus' prayers. Some answer is about to be given. Some insight is about to be revealed. We're about to be brought into kind of the inner dialogue between his heavenly father and Jesus himself. Every time Jesus is found praying, Jesus is somewhat rehearsing his mission. He's receiving the divine enablement and empowerment to continue on with the purpose and mission for why he has come. So we're prepared, even as Luke begins these four verses together, for us to see something and remind ourselves about who Jesus is and therefore why he's come and what he's about to do. And the disciples need to know that. They need to be brought in, if they're effective disciples, into why God has left them here. They need to be brought into why Jesus is here. Do you think that's important, being a disciple of Christ? Knowing what priorities God had for Jesus to follow through on, and therefore knowing what priorities we as Christians are supposed to have. You ever get your priorities out of whack? You spend some time drifting, and you remember, wait a minute, I'm a Christian. I don't live forever on this earth. I have a purpose that God has left me here to be about the Father's business. Well, the disciples need to be reminded of that. The disciples aren't just launched into ministry, preaching great, casting out demons and healing. There's a purpose for why they're here. And similarly, Jesus has left, and Jesus is here, to disclose something about who he is to these men. So, here's Jesus praying. The disciples were with him. And he asked them. And I just want you to see that Jesus initiates this question. There's been lots of uh, popular talk. Reports about Jesus have just flooded the countryside. And Jesus pulls the 12 disciples aside in Luke's telling of the story after we've experienced the feeding of the 5,000 and it's as if he says, all right men, huddle up. I want to ask you a question. People have been asking me questions. I've been telling parables. I've been telling stories. I've been teaching and preaching the gospel and the kingdom of God, and so have you. But something is important about our relationship. We need to talk about something. He asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? See, for Jesus to ask that question lets us know that Jesus takes it seriously when people misrepresent who he is, right? It's just like you. If you are slandered or people tell a story about you that compromises your character, you have issue with that. Similarly, when Jesus gets the men that he is discipling together, he wants to make sure that they are clear on who he is. It's as if Jesus pauses all of the ministry to gather up the 12 and says, hey, what are they saying about me on the internet? What are the thoughts and feelings about me and who I am out there? Who do the crowds say that I am? Now the crowds in Luke are kind of the mass of people that aren't spiritually sensitive. They're essentially dense and unaware of who Jesus is. And Jesus is drawing a a contrast between who the disciples say he is and who the crowds say he is. Certainly the crowds have seen his miracles. Certainly the crowds are filled with excitement. Certainly the crowds are talking a whole lot about Jesus and who he is. But Jesus is going to take time to ask the disciples, you were there handing out the food to the 5,000. What are people saying? What's the chatter? What are they saying about me out there? 
And this question, frankly, has been building. If you keep your finger, uh, I'll, I, yeah, let's do that. Let's keep your finger there. I want to show you this so that you can see it with your own eyes. Turn back, keep your finger in nine, and go back to Luke 4. Look at Luke, uh, Luke 4. What book am I in? Am I in the wrong book? I'm sorry. It's, you'd think I did this for a living or something. Anyway, let's look at uh, Luke. I'll just, I'll mention it. Turn back to Luke 9. Forget it. Just forget it. I've got a wrong cross-reference. Mental note. Fix your cross-references. Uh, you remember when Jesus heals the paralytic on the, and they let, he's let down through the roof and he says, son, your sins are forgiven and everybody starts questioning in their hearts. They said, who is this that speaks blasphemies? Nobody can forgive sins but God alone. And the Pharisees and the scribes are asking that question. Who is this? When you get into Luke chapter 7 uh, and Jesus forgives the sinful woman, Again, it's brought up, who can forgive sins but God alone? When you get into Luke chapter 8, remember the disciples on the boat and the calming and the wind and the waves? What do they ask? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? You're going to have who is this twice in Luke chapter 9. So all the way through the book of Luke, you're watching humanity wrestle and grapple with who Jesus is. We, the readers of Luke, understand that from, from decades ago, when the angels sang and Gabriel came to Zechariah and Gabriel came to Mary, that we've been prepared for the unveiling and the revelation of who John the Baptist and Jesus Christ were. But up to this point, you'll see in a minute that we have a significant turning point in the book of Luke. So let's see what they answer. Look at verse 19. Luke 8, verse 19. And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Now, if you've been with us just over the past three weeks, that should ring a bell to you. You should remember that we've had a similar response to that question in Luke chapter 9. Just go up with me in Luke chapter 9, back up to verses 7. Look at 9 verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard all about what was happening and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Verse 9, Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things, and he sought to see him. There it is again. There's another question. Who is this? Who is this? Who is this? Who is this? And Jesus presses the disciples. Who do the crowd say I am? Well, now people in the highest echelons of the political rulers of the day are hearing the crowd say the same question. The disciples give the same answer that Herod hears. Number one, he's John the Baptist. Which if for no other reason than their holistic commitment to God and to his plan is a pretty close guess, isn't it? You've got one guy who's eating and drinking and one guy who's not. One guy who's clothed with camel's fur and one guy who's not. One guy who's fasting and one guy who's not. But we know for both of them they're so compelling because of their commitment to God and what he wants them to do. They're totally bought in to who God is and what he wants them to say. So it's almost natural for the, the crowds of the day to go, it must be John the Baptist 
resurrected from the dead, which causes Herod some consternation, but this happens all the time. You even see this in, in our day in the sports world, that we have a new athlete who's on the scene and we say, he's the next fill in the blank, right? He's the next Tom Brady. He's the next Michael Jordan. He's the next whoever. And it's as if the crowds go, we saw somebody of incredible spiritual power just a little bit ago. He's dead, but it must be somebody else. John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Now, Elijah has been mentioned in this book already. Jesus mentioned him in Luke chapter 4. Elijah was one of the most significant Old Testament prophets who called the unbelieving Jewish leadership of the day to account. He did miracles. He killed the prophets of Baal. He had this incredible prophetic ministry. And much like John the Baptist, who called power to account, Elijah himself is somebody that is coming up in the minds and hearts of the crowd, or it says, one of the prophets. But what I want you to see just in lumping these three groups of people, three kind of groups together, is that the crowds are making a categorical distinction. The crowds don't have a category for Jesus other than prophet. Somebody who speaks the truth, somebody who speaks the words of God, somebody who acts on behalf of God, revealing truth to the people. But if nothing else, what we know about the crowds is that their understanding of Jesus is essentially insufficient. While Jesus certainly does speak the truth like the prophets of old, he's more than a prophet, right? So their understanding of Christ is fundamentally insufficient. You even have this in our day today. There are plenty of world religions who look at Jesus Christ with respect, who look at Jesus Christ with deference, but they don't take the point of view and the perspective of Jesus Christ and his own person. They'll call him a great prophet. They'll call him a great man. They'll call him a great teacher. They'll lump him in with prophets of old. Islam is like this. But they won't take Jesus at his word in a passage like this. So now Jesus, in asking this question, is going to press it on the disciples. Disciples, you have accompanied me on my travels. Disciples, you have seen the miracles I've done. Disciples, you have worked on my behalf, casting out demons and diseases. Who do you say that I am? Look at verse 20. Then he said to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Now, when Peter uses that term, that term has only been used three times up to this book. Do you know that? And up to this point in this book, that term, the Christ, has only been on the lips of supernatural beings. Gabriel mentions that Jesus is the Christ. Demons mention that Jesus is the Christ. The Holy Spirit speaks to, to uh, Simeon, telling him that he will not die before he sees the Lord's Christ. But at this point in the book of Luke, it's the very first time that a human gets it right. That a human finally recognizes, after nine chapters... A human goes, you're the Christ of God. You're the one sent from God. The Christ is a New Testament term of an Old Testament idea. In the Old Testament, the idea is called the Messiah, the anointed one. In Greek, the anointed one is Christos. So here is Peter making a confession that you are not a prophet. You may speak like prophets speak. 
But there's something different about you in comparison to all the other prophets that have come before. You are the Christ. You are the anointed one. You are God's designated prophet, priest, king, servant who God has laid his hands on and anointed as divine. As anointed back in his baptism. Remember what God said? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You have the affirmation of heaven itself. Now, this term Christ, like I said, has only been used three times up to this point. And after this point in the book, you know it doesn't show up again until chapter 20. And in chapter 20 and beyond, what it becomes is the antagonism that creates the environment for the crucifixion of Jesus. So Peter recognizes that Jesus is God's anointed one. And it's hard for us to understand, especially in Luke, that, that has a tendency to kind of compress some of these thoughts. But it's hard for us to understand what the disciples really meant by that. Just as when people talk about Jesus, it's hard for us to really know how much expectation they put into that term. And even for the disciples, it's hard for us to understand because Jesus is going to have to tell them some of the things he's about to say three or four times through the course of this book, and they aren't going to get it. Many think when they read a passage like this and they look at the disciples acknowledging that Jesus is the Christ, that they import into that term all sorts of messianic expectations about what Jesus ought to do. Have we seen some confusion about what Jesus ought to be doing even in this book already? Yeah, so I think we can expect that the disciples in this time probably have maybe a accurate confession of who Jesus is, but they ne don't necessarily have an accurate expectation and understanding of Jesus' plan. And you've been there before. I believe in Jesus, Son of the God, sent from the Father. He died on the cross for my sins, but I don't understand what he's doing. You been there? No, just me. Good. Look into my life. I don't get what he's doing right now. I don't understand his plan. Do I know who he is? I know who he is. Do I know his plan? I don't understand his plan. I thought he was gonna fill in the blank. I thought it wouldn't fill in the blank. I thought there would be fill in the blank. And there isn't. And he's doing something. And I don't understand it. And it hurts. And it's painful. And it's hard. And, I don't, and I'm confused. And this is, this is a confession not without serious joy, even from Jesus. If you read this, this account over in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus will say, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. This is a moment of great joy. But we don't get that in Luke. So the crowds have an assessment of Jesus Christ that is fundamentally insufficient. But what I want you to see here is that the disciples and Peter as the spokesman has a confession of Jesus as God's anointed one that is essentially incomplete. It's partially true. He's right. The Holy Spirit is upon him and has anointed him to preach the good news to the poor. But that's not the whole story. So let's look at the full story and let's, let's watch Jesus respond here. Jesus is about to introduce us to a, 
perhaps a much less glorious reality and one that will confuse confuse and bewilder the disciples. So we have who the crowds say Jesus is, which is insufficient. We have who the disciples say Jesus is that is incomplete. Let's allow Jesus to talk. All in favor of hearing Jesus define himself. Right? Jesus, tell us. What do you have to say about who you are? Verse 21. He's gonna, but not before doing something really strange. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Isn't that weird? Do you know strictly charged in the book of Luke is always translated as rebuked, except for right here. Jesus just did something to Peter that he has done to demons in this book. So just imagine this moment with the 12, Jesus is praying, seeking his heavenly father, we're being reminded of his divine mission, the things that he's about to accomplish, what God has in store for him. Jesus asked the disciples, who do, who do the crowd say? Well, John and Elijah and some of the other prophets. He said, okay, well, who do you say? Wow, well, the Christ of God. Bob, bless, bless the Lord. God revealed that to you. That's so awesome. Now shut up. Shh. Don't say a word. Well, why? Now, in part, I think we can, we can presume that they have expectations of Jesus that perhaps haven't been met. Even John the Baptist had expectations of Jesus that haven't been met. So we're, we're watching Luke invite us into Jesus' self-disclosure to the disciples. And we're watching Luke unveil for us in their expectations and their hopes and their ambitions for Jesus and what they've experienced and what he's done. Feeding the 5,000, raising the dead, healing the lame, healing people with sicknesses, driving out demons. All of these things have been victorious accomplishments as evidence that God has his hand on Christ. That what he is doing affirms that he is the anointed Christ of God. And then Jesus says, shh. Don't tell anyone. And then Luke gives us, not so much, just he gives us a description of what Jesus said. Here's a quote of what Jesus said. You see verse 22, how verse 22 starts? One word. Starts with saying. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Who do the crowds say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Now shut up, I'm going to talk in the most Jesus way possible. Here's what I'm going to say. Now what Jesus says next is really important for how we understand his self-disclosure, how we understand Jesus defining himself to the disciples. Because Jesus uses a term the disciples don't use, right? Peter says, you are the what? You're the Christ. Jesus says, don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ. And let me explain the Son of Man. Now this, I think, helps us understand. Uh, this is Jesus' favorite term for himself. Do you know that? He consistently refers to himself as the Son of Man. It's a distinct Old Testament term. It often shows up in the book of Ezekiel to simply mean a human. In fact, when people consider both the divinity and the humanity of Jesus Christ, they typically go, speak about it in two ways. He is both the Son of Man, which means he's distinctly human, and he's the Son of God, which means he's distinctly divine. Put those two together and you've got Jesus, fully man, fully God. But when Jesus uses the term the son of man, he's using a distinct Old Testament term that is, that is kind of a, um, it's a foil, it's a, it's a counterpart 
Uh, it, it's, a, it's a term that is filled with Old Testament anticipation about glory. It's filled with hopes and expectations of somebody setting this thing right. Let me, let me show it to you. Keep your finger there in Luke and turn back to Daniel. So the crowds are saying something insufficient. The disciples are saying something incomplete. And Jesus introduces us to a term that's not the Christ, it's the Son of Man. Look at Daniel chapter 7. Right about in the middle of your Bible. Right after Ezekiel, that big one in the middle that's nobody reads. Daniel chapter 7, look at verse 13. Daniel 7, 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a, what? Son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. All the way through the book of Daniel, if you read the book of Daniel, the, uh, the book of Daniel is all about foreign power, world power kings who come to the recognition that they are not the top of their game, that there's someone who rules over the kingdoms of men. And here in Daniel chapter 7, it's the one who's called the Son of Man. Now let's come back to Luke. Here's what Jesus, you expect Jesus to say. We've been doing miracles. We've been raising the dead. We've been healing the lame. We've been preaching. The demons are running away. Disease runs away. Now you want to know who I am? I'm the Son of Man. I'm about to inherit a kingdom. I'm about to be over all the earth. I'm about to destroy the enemies. I'm about to ruin this wicked religious establishment. I'm going to get rid of the, the footprint, the, the foot of Rome that's on the neck of God's people. I'm about to redeem and restore everything because I am the Son of man, but that's not what Jesus says. In fact, many commentators, when they read this, go, when somebody mentions the son of man to the Jews, they would think victorious, ruling, reigning, everlasting dominion and authority given from God himself to rule over the whole world. When Jesus mentions the son of man over in Luke, when he talks to the scribes and the Pharisees, he, will says, he says, from now on, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great glory. The Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees, they shut their ears, scream, and say, blasphemy. And it creates the environment in which Jesus is crucified. Now, when Jesus says to the disciples, the Son of Man, watch what he connects and puts together with the Son of Man. It's not glory, it's not kingdoms, it's not everlasting, it's not beauty, it's not any of those things. It's the total opposite. This text is a total hairpin turn. Because you expect all of the disciples to go, yeah, yeah, you're not the crowds, like what the crowds are saying. We got it right, you're the Christ. He goes, don't talk about that. Let me tell you who I am. Here's who Jesus Christ is. The Son of Man, number one. And everything in here, there's about five different verbs all connected to Jesus. The Son of Man, number one, must suffer. It's called a divine imperative. This is an essential part of the plan. When that word must is connected to Jesus Christ, it's something he can't get away from, he can't avoid, he can't redefine. It's something that is absolutely a part of his essential ministry as given from the Father to him. And number one, he must suffer. For the first time in Luke, Jesus introduces the theme of his coming suffering. The betrayal of Jesus, 
the abandonment of his disciples, the denials of Peter, the flogging, the torture, the disrespect from the, from the uh, Roman guards, the crown of thorns, the mocking, the turn of the tide from Hosanna to crucify him. All of that is compressed into one singular word, that the Son of Man must suffer. Number two, he must be rejected by a specific group. You see that? He must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. This group shows up again. It drops out in the book of Luke, but it shows up again toward the end of the narrative because this becomes the tripartite group that gathers together and uh, aligns themselves against the Son of God. And their determination that he is a blasphemer and worthy of death is the national rejection of the Messiah. Number one, he must suffer. Number two, he must be rejected. Number three, he must be killed. You see how Jesus is the direct object of all these verbs? They're all, they're all done to, remember direct objects? Any English teachers in here, give me an amen. Okay, thank you. Rick is an English teacher, that's it? Nobody is a teacher in here who knows what a direct object is? That's okay. Everything is passive. Do you see this? He must suffer. Suffering must be done. He must be rejected by the chief priest. He must be killed. Humanity itself will turn on this man. And he will experience suffering, rejection, and death. Torture, pain, hardship are ahead. Which lets you know that we're headed toward, the reason Jesus does this is that you're headed toward absolute technicolor clarity about who he is. You'll worship him or you'll hate him. But what he won't allow you to do is redefine him. He will force the issue with every single person that he comes in contact with. Number four, there's good news. And on the third day, be raised. Isn't it interesting to think that the first three are all of what humanity does to Jesus? The last one is what God does to Jesus. It's called a theological divine passive. Is that God himself will raise him from the dead as evidence that his sacrifice was accepted, as evidence of his justification, as evidence of his vindication, that he is who he said he was. He, he is the anointed one. And his resurrection proves that. Romans puts it like this, that he is declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The Trinity itself says he is the anointed one. Now, <clears throat> this, quite frankly, is why all the way through the New Testament, you have a constant callback to the definitions that Jesus gives here. Why won't Jesus allow himself to be interpreted as merely a prophet? Why won't Jesus allow himself to be merely a miracle worker? 
Why won't Jesus just receive the applause of the crowd? Why won't Jesus agree with the disciples and say, yeah, I am the Christ? Because there's something far more important for you to know about Jesus than he is that he is merely a miracle worker, that he is merely a prophet, that he is merely a teacher from God, that he is merely somebody who can do great things. The singular thing that Jesus wants you to know about who he is, that he is the suffering servant who will die on the cross for sinners and be raised three days later. See, this is all over the New Testament. Let me give you this, 1 Corinthians 2. When I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I resolved. I'm not going to talk about Jesus' miracle working Jesus. I'm not going to talk about raising the dead Jesus. I'm going to talk about Jesus crucified on the cross for sinners. Here's what Paul says later in 1 Corinthians. I delivered to you of first importance, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. What's the point, Paul? What do you want to preach, Paul? Nothing but Christ and him crucified. What about the miracles? Free feeding of the 5,000? No. Jesus Christ and him crucified. How about Galatians? I'll give you another one in Galatians. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Galatians chapter 1. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. What's Paul want you to know in Galatians? Jesus Christ and him crucified. How about Paul to Timothy? Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, is preached in my gospel. 1 Timothy 2, there's one God, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and apostle. Okay, so here we are in 2023, and you come to church, and you come to Citadel Square, and isn't that great? What's the temptation for us as a church? When you read Luke, 18 to, Luke 9, 18 to 22, what's the temptation that shows up in our culture? Easy, easy. Here's the temptation. You ready? One, two, three. Preach half of Jesus. Preach a part of Jesus. Preach a popular aspect of Jesus. Preach a victory, conquering Jesus. Preach a miracle working Jesus. Preach a preferential Jesus. Preach a Jesus who doesn't disagree with you, but does great things. Preach a political Jesus who just so happens to agree with the doctrinal statement of that side. But then when you hear somebody else preach, that just so happens to agree with the doctrinal statement of that side. Preach part of Jesus. Preach the non-essentials of Jesus. But Jesus drives the point home to these disciples who all but one will be martyred for their faith. And says, suffering is coming. Crucifixion is coming. Rejection is coming. And I am the Son of Man, and I'm going to go through it. And for the disciples to hear that the Son of Man, the exalted one in Daniel 7, is also the same one who's going to get up on the cross and be rejected, has to create such conflict in their hearts. It has to create such confusion for them. Jesus, this is bad PR. We like the healings. We like the raising the dead. We like the feeding the 5,000. We like the preaching of the de at the demons. That part's fun too. But Jesus, you're telling me that suffering, rejection, and death is ahead? 
It's not that it's impossible, but it's profoundly improbable. And it's only the disciples who are following close to Jesus who get this information. And see, for us, that, that's a very, very important of our, part of our Christian life and our development of understanding who Jesus Christ is. So for a lot of us, we face disappointment with Christ because we don't think that Christ has handled the things that are most important to us. And when Jesus gives us here in 922 is a confession that he is about to handle the most important thing for every single person in this room. He's about to be rejected for you. He's about to be denied for you. He's about to be abandoned for you. He's about to be crucified for you. He's about to be killed for you. And he's about to be raised for you. So the temptation is to move the gospel and move his sacrificial suffering in our place on our behalf, out of the central things that we think about Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, I will not let you do it. I don't care if you have an incomplete picture of who I am. You cannot neglect this truth about who I am. Because, listen, nobody wants to talk about Jesus sacrificed on the cross for sinners. Why? Because it means that we're sinners. Right? In need of a Savior. And Jesus says, that is front and center why I have come. See, here Jesus restrains the disciples. But once he is crucified, once he is buried, and once he is risen from the dead as evidence of his vindication before God and vindication of the fact that for every single person who put their faith in him, they can be counted full, complete, forgiven, redeemed, restored, and justified before God. When that happens, then Jesus tells the disciples what? Go everywhere. Tell everyone. Sin has been conquered. I have won. Death and the grave have no more to say. And now you go from here and you tell how many nations? All the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. Amen and amen. So if you are here this morning and you've never really considered who Jesus is, I would encourage you to take one of these Bibles in the pews and you read through the Gospels. And I want you to consider who Jesus Christ is to you. I want you to consider that he can forgive your sins, that he can heal your broken relationship with God. That he can make things right in your life that have never been right. And church, if, listen, it's September and you've fallen off in your Bible reading plan because it's September and you're like, gosh, I can't wait for Christmas and get that motivation back. Can I encourage you to start reading your Bible again? Can I encourage you to pick it up and grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ so that you might know him in new and deep and meaningful ways that he, his truth and his person and his, his work on your behalf might take up residence in your heart and might become the anchor and the song of your life. That you might be reminded of what he has done. That you might hear him say, I have been crucified. I have been rejected. I have been martyred for you and I have been raised. And may that be the truth that we preach here at Citadel Square from year to year to year to year. That Jesus came to die and be raised for sinners. Amen?
Father, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks for the truth that you have given to us here that allows Jesus to define his ministry himself, that defines his person himself. And Father, for those realities in our own life that the hope that we have of Jesus Christ might take up residence in our hearts, that we might be refreshed again, that the gospel would be experienced as good news as we meditate on it, that Jesus died for me in my place for my sins and has been risen from the dead as proof of my justification. So Father, permit us to preach the clear truth about who you are. Help us not be swayed by what many may think and many may say in our culture, on the internet, with bloggers and the variety of challenges there are out there, but that we would hold to the biblical truth of who you are. And Father, we love you. We pray this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Amen.